This week, we're dipping back into the archives to take a listen to one of our all-time favorite episodes. Enjoy. More than 15,000 different stocks, options, and bonds. Millions of trades. When it comes to detecting insider trading, it really is like finding a needle in a haystack. But that's precisely what Sam Drotty and his team in the Insider Trading Group of FINRA's Office of Fraud Detection and Market Intelligence do every day. They find those unusual and suspicious trades, whether they net the potential illegal trader a couple hundred dollars, millions of dollars, or even net them a loss. On today's episode, we learn how. Welcome to FINRA Unscripted. From Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Sam Drowdy, our Senior Vice President of the Insider Trading Surveillance Group within FINRA's Office of Fraud Detection and Market Intelligence. Sam, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Caitlin, for having me. Sam, I saw that fresh out of law school, you started your career as a criminal prosecutor in the state attorney's office in Baltimore? That's correct. So is it safe to say you always wanted to go out there and pursue a path in public service and catching the bad guys? That's correct. And initially, my thought was to stay in the criminal side of things for the rest of my career. But after my time in the prosecutor's office in Baltimore County, an opportunity at the SEC came along. And I found that I enjoyed chasing the bad guys in the securities world even more than I did in the streets of Baltimore. So I found my passion and my calling at the SEC. What is it about the securities world that really grabbed you? Well, those who are committing the crimes are generally more privileged. They'd know better than a lot of the crimes, the robberies, rapes, murders that I was prosecuting in Baltimore. So to me, it made them more culpable in some ways, that they knew better, and yet they were still committing the crimes. So I started out by saying that you work with the Office of Fraud Detection and Market Intelligence. That's quite the mouthful, so listeners can expect us to call it OFDMI. But what is this group, and can you tell us what you focus on? Sure. And I call it OFDMI as well, because it is a mouthful. I'll start with how the group was formed. Back in 2009, shortly after the Madoff and Stanford scandals, both the SEC and FINRA made a determination to look internally to figure out how these types of scandals could be prevented again. And if you recall in the Madoff scandal, there was a guy named Harry Markopoulos, who was a whistleblower and who tried really to get the attention of the SEC for a long time and had sent some information to FINRA. And that information was dispersed throughout the organizations, but was never centralized. No one ever put all the pieces together to make the determination that the Madoff situation was something that should be looked at and looked at immediately by either the SEC or FINRA. So FINRA, in doing the autopsy of the Madoff situation, decided to house the fraud that comes into the organization in one department. And it was decided between Steve Luperella, who was the head of market regulation at the time, and my boss, Cam Funkhauser, to form this new department so that anyone in the organization who received information about fraud, and that could be anyone who received a tip or complaint from the outside, from someone in the industry, potentially in an exam, or in the surveillance world that we work in, if there was any fraud detected, that it would be sent over to our office, OFDMI, to be looked at by senior level people who would triage that information and make determinations about whether we should keep it internally in the department, whether we should send it to another department within FINRA, like enforcement, or member regulation, or whether we should send it outside the organization to places like the SEC, FBI, criminal authorities, state regulators. And so that's basically how the department started and essentially what they do. 
And you mentioned a whistleblower. That's one of the four groups within OFDMI along with insider trading. What are the other ones? So the other two groups are our fraud surveillance group, and that group is charged with the responsibility of looking at the markets for any pump and dump schemes, market manipulations, issuer frauds. They're looking at a lot of publicly traded companies on the -the over-the-counter markets, but also listed companies as well. And then there's the central review group, which consists of front-end cause and the preliminary investigations unit. And in addition to the whistleblower group, which takes in a lot of tips and complaints, the central review group takes in the vast majority of complaints for the organization. They get between 25,000 and 30,000 tips a year that they triage and then make determinations on as to where it should go either internally or outside the organization. That is a lot of tips. You head up the insider trading investigations group. So before we get into that, I just wanted to take a step back and define insider trading. There's two different kinds, legal, illegal. So just wanted to clarify that. Sure. Legal insider trading happens all the time. And that's when you have insiders, generally at public companies. Like a CEO or CFO. Or a member of the board of directors, even someone employed at the company who may be trading on their company stock, but it's not during a period in which they're in possession of what's called material non-public information, meaning information that a reasonable investor might use and take to trade. That's the definition of material. And obviously non-public is it's not out in the public. There's no press release about it. There's no announcement about it. So as long as a company employee, whether they're an officer director or on the board of directors, doesn't have material non-public information and they're not trading during what's called a blackout period, which is when companies prevent their employees from trading, it's perfectly legal for them to trade in their company stock. And that's reported to the SEC generally? It can be depending on your status with the company. So generally, officers and directors of publicly traded companies are required to report those purchases or sales in the form of a Form 4, which is filed with the SEC, which serves a real role in the marketplace because it tells investors that there's nothing suspicious going on potentially with the trading of an officer director, that they're publicly announcing it, and that it's completely transparent. And just so that listeners know, you could look that up yourself on the SEC's Edgar. We'll include a link to that for anyone curious. Now your group. What's your group's role and how is it looking at the other side of the coin and the illegal insider trading? Sure. And I guess to back up just a little bit, because people probably wonder why FINRA is doing this work. People look at FINRA as an organization and know generally that they're charged with the responsibility of overseeing the broker-dealer industry examining broker-dealers, writing the rules, enforcing the rules. And that is a vast majority of our regulatory structure. But in my surveillance responsibilities, as well as with market regulation within FINRA, we actually are representing the U.S. exchanges in performing the surveillance responsibilities. We have contractual arrangements with them to do their surveillance, and that surveillance includes looking for insider trading in the U.S. markets. And our group covers the entire U.S. marketplace for equities or stock, corporate debt, which is bonds and options. And as you said, we are looking on the other side of the coin, which is the illegal insider trading. And so we are looking across the U.S. markets for anything unusual going on surrounding what are the material news announcements, announcements that are going to move a company's stock or the bonds or options, and looking for suspicious trading surrounding those material news announcements. Anyone trading timely, profitably, suspiciously, And whether they're trading on information they got from someone else or they gained through themselves, that's sort of the name of the game for our investigations. And how big is your team? Where are they working? So we have 37 people in Rockville in the Insider Trading Surveillance Group. And that side of my team looks at potential insider trading in equities and corporate debt or bonds. 
And then we have within that framework in Rockville, we have four groups who are looking at listed stocks and bonds. So on the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange and all the listed exchanges. And then I have one specific group that looks on the over-the-counter markets for potential insider trading. And then in Chicago, I have another 20 people who are charged with the responsibility of looking at potential insider trading in the options area. So how do you work to uncover insider trading? Well, it's a process. Our investigations are mainly triggered by our electronic surveillance system called Sonar. And basically what Sonar does is look for unusual price or volume movements in the marketplace surrounding publicly traded companies. And it's not telling us where insider traders are trading, but it's telling us where to look for insider trading because we have about 15,000 stocks and securities that we're looking at every day. So Sonar is tracking the trading. It's looking for something unusual in the sense that if a stock is trading unusually compared to its 100-day average or trading unusually compared to the index it trades on or to the sector it trades in, there's a whole slew of algorithms that go into it but it spotlights those particular stocks, and then it actually matches it up to news stories. And Sonar basically is saying, hey, there's unusual trading going on with a particular security, and here's what the news is surrounding it. So for example, when Amazon acquired Whole Foods, Sonar flagged Whole Foods stock and said, there's something unusual going on here, and here's all the news surrounding it. And Sonar receives about 30,000 news stories a day and highlights all the news, not only current news, with respect to what's going on with a particular stock, but what the past news is. So we can see if, for example, there were any rumors out there about a particular merger. Did the Wall Street Journal report that Amazon and Whole Foods were in discussions a month before the public announcement? Because an insider trader can point to those types of things. So that's how our investigations are triggered to start with. We're looking at any trading ahead of a material news announcement because there are very sophisticated traders in the marketplace who know to trade in such a way as to not to move the market, quite frankly. And so it's important to us not to discount even situations where there's very little movement in terms of volume or price ahead of a material news announcement. So how much data are you working with? Millions and millions of trades in a particular day. And we actually store the data as well. So last count, we had stored trade data going back 20 plus years. And in our investigations, we go through a process. So after the surveillance system sonar flags the particular event that we want to look at, we start an investigation and we go through a, a few steps in the investigation. The first thing we do is we send out and request chronology information from the parties involved in the material news announcement. So in the case of a merger, I'll stick with that because that's probably about 60% of the announcements that we look at. We're looking at mergers, we're looking at earnings announcements, FDA approvals or rejections of drugs, anything that's going to move a company's stock. But mergers are really our bread and butter because that's where people are guaranteed to make money. If you know about a merger in advance, you can pretty much rest assured that the stock of the company that's going to be acquired is going to go up. So in the case of a merger, we're going to get chronology information from the two companies involved. But we're also going to get chronology information from all the parties that work on behalf of the companies. So that includes the investment banks, the law firms, the accounting firms, the public relations firms, the printers. Because we want to know the entire universe of all the people that worked for those entities and we're in possession of material non-public information before it became public. And we'll ask questions including, when did each individual come into possession of the information and what their roles were with respect to the material news announcement, in this case, the merger. So we get the chronology information and we even get their home addresses too, because proximity is important in looking at insider trading. We've had situations where we've had small towns in the United States where a small bank is located and the entire town starts trading because they know the head of the bank who gets his hair cut at the local barbershop and eats at the local Kentucky Fried Chicken and tells everybody what's going on. 
So we get the chronology information and then we get the trade data and the trade data is called blue sheet data. And that is called blue sheet data because about 50 years ago, it actually used to come on blue paper. And thankfully for all concerned, <laughs> it's now electronic, especially for my investigators. And they do the analytics on the trade data and determine, as I said earlier, who's trading timely, profitably, suspiciously. And if you're talking about a merger, sometimes we're looking at negotiations that could go on for five, six, seven months. So we might be looking at five or six, seven months of trade data. And it's in the tens, if not hundreds of millions of shares. So we provide them a lot of tools to do so. And ultimately, at the end of the day, their job is to determine who's trading timely, profitably, suspiciously, and are they connected to anyone who's in possession of the information? And that's generally the people in the chronologies. Sometimes people in the chronologies will see an officer or director of a company or a lawyer or a law firm might actually be trading in the trade data, and that's insider trading 101. They're cooked immediately. That's something we would flag immediately and probably, if not pursue ourselves, we'd send it over the SEC. But there's a lot of analytics and matching being done from the blue sheet or trade data to the chronologies. And then after that's done, a list is compiled of names of individuals trading timely, profitably, suspiciously. And there may be other reasons why they go on this list. We call it an identification list. And that goes back out to the parties, the companies, the law firms, the investment banks, with a series of questions basically saying, do you know anyone on this list? How do you know them? Did you have any discussions with them during this period of time, which is our review period for our investigation? And did you provide them any material information? And as you can imagine, the answer to the last question is generally no. I don't think anyone's ever said yes to that question. I'm waiting for that one because that would be a nice, easy case. But basically, we are finding that almost everybody's truthful when they respond. But certainly, we found plenty of people who have not been truthful, who knew someone on the list and didn't identify them or knew someone on the list and said, I barely know them. I haven't seen them in five years. And it turned out they were next door neighbors or they were college roommates and they go together away every year. And so once you have the chronologies, the trade analysis done, the identification responses come back, then the investigators will go out and get account statements, trade histories, to determine if, any, if the trading looks suspicious relative to their trade histories, whether someone just opened an account and started trading, whether they've ever traded in that particular security before. And then we use social media in a big way. Our investigators are very savvy with respect to social media. So we look at things like Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and Google. So like if you say you don't know someone on that list, but your Facebook friends with them. That would be a major problem. And we're certainly looking at all that information. We've found people hunting together on Twitter, or we've found them in the same picture at weddings online. And uh, we'll look at anything and everything to draw connections between people. And that's really the job of the investigators. A couple things there that I wanted to follow up on. You mentioned that you're looking for profitable trades, but I've also seen some cases where they're not always profitable. Like if someone trades on the company doing the acquisition rather than the one being acquired, can you talk about how even if you lose money, you could get caught too? Sure. You're much better off if you lose money if you're an insider trader because it looks a lot less suspicious. But there are certainly instances where We've seen people in possession of, for example, earnings, an earnings announcement, and the details about an earnings announcement before it becomes public, and they trade, and there are details within the earnings announcement that maybe they didn't really kind of analyze enough, and they end up losing money, but they're still insider trading. So those are the types of things that, to us, it doesn't matter. You know, we don't have a threshold, a dollar amount of what someone makes in order to make a determination as to whether it's suspicious or not, or whether we might send it over the SEC. From our perspective... If they are trading on material non-public information and they are intentionally doing it, we will pursue them. And if it's a FINRA registered person, for example, we've brought cases for a few hundred dollars involving FINRA registered reps or stockbrokers. 
And we certainly sent plenty of cases over to the SEC in the hundreds of dollars. But at the end of the day, if you make $300 or $3 million, it's the same federal securities law violation. You are insider trading. So to us, it doesn't make a difference. You mentioned referring to the SEC. In 2017, FINRA referred 850 fraud matters, about half of which were insider trading matters. Can you just explain why we refer so many cases and what makes something something we would refer versus something we would pursue ourselves? Sure. As I said, we do the work on behalf of the exchanges. So whether someone's registered with FINRA or not is not a consideration. Basically, at the conclusion of our investigations, the investigations I've described, probably between 90 and 95% of the investigations end up as referrals to the SEC. And my group alone sends over 400 referrals a year to the SEC. And that's because those individuals and entities are not under our jurisdiction. And so the SEC can pursue those cases through subpoena power and the use of the federal government. Whereas while we can conduct investigations to a certain point in the way I described, there's a limit to what we can do. And we certainly can't sanction people who are not registered with FINRA. So that's why the vast majority of our investigations end up as referrals to the SEC. The other 5 to 10% of the investigations involve FINRA-registered conduct. And those are cases we generally would pursue internally. Just quick example, in an M&A, someone in the industry might be the investment banker versus someone outside the industry might be the accountant. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So the investment banker would likely be, and as long as they're registered with FINRA, which they probably should be, we would pursue them internally. But the answer is depends, too, because there may be a situation where the investment banker was in possession of the information, but he tipped a whole slew of people that were not registered with FINRA. And so if it makes more sense from an evidentiary perspective or a jurisdictional perspective to send that information over to the SEC to pursue both the investment banker and the people he tipped, say, for example, his clients, maybe, or customers or neighbors or things like that, then we'd take that under consideration as to whether it makes more sense for FINRA to pursue it with our enforcement group or whether it makes more sense for the SEC to pursue it. After you've referred a case, what happens? After we refer a case to the SEC, we work very closely with the Office of Market Intelligence, the group at the SEC that receives these referrals. If the SEC is going to open an investigation, they will request the exhibits in the matter. It doesn't always mean when they request exhibits, they're opening investigation, but that's pretty much them saying, hey, we want to take a look at this. And then generally the SEC will conduct the investigation on their own. And if there's a criminal aspect to it, they might engage the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office. And then along the way, they might come back to us and ask questions. While they have all the exhibits in the investigation, there are certain nuances they may be interested in. So they'll contact us often throughout the investigation. And at the end of the day, they may bring an action and we'll see our names being thanked in the litigation release or the press release. And when you say exhibits, is that like the blue sheets and the list of names? The chronologies, yeah, the that. identification, okay. list, even, even the social media stuff that we're looking at, the account statements, trade histories, things like that. Everything that's collected in the investigation, we'll send over to them. So now I wanted to ask you, what are some of the most interesting cases you've seen? It's hard to say because everyone is kind of special and has its own unique story. I remember when I left the SEC and there was a deputy director over there who said, you sure you're not going to be bored doing insider trading cases every single day? And I had to consider that. But in coming here and now doing it for 13 years, there's never a dull day in the office because every single insider trading story has a unique aspect to it. So to pick the most interesting is hard, but I'd say probably two of the more interesting cases. One is the Galleon case with a guy named Raj Rajratnam, which was a huge criminal and SEC case brought in the early 2000s. And I started at FINRA in 2007. 
And I guess that case was brought shortly after I got there. And it changed the game for insider trading in the United States because typically insider trading cases were the purview within the range of the SEC. And they were always active in bringing cases. But the criminal authorities, that was a game changer for them to really draw an interest because it was such a large case and such an interesting case because they brought about the idea of performing wiretaps and getting informants to the insider trading world and brought tools to our investigations that had never been brought before. And so that triggered sort of an interest of criminal authorities throughout the country, U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI, and still to this day have a great interest in these insider trading cases. And obviously for a very good reason, they are incredibly disruptive to the markets. And these people generally are people who are better off, who know what they're doing, and they're heinous crimes to the investing public. And so the criminal authorities really treat these cases seriously. So that's a big one. I'd say in terms of sort of publicity, probably one of the bigger ones that I've been involved with is the case involving Phil Mickelson, the golfer. And what makes that case pretty interesting is the characters involved, because it was a scenario in which the company Dean Foods, which is a massive conglomerate of food in the United States, had a member of their board of directors who was their former CEO, who fell into debt to a guy named Billy Walters, who was the founder of the sports betting industry in the United States. Billy Walters lived in Las Vegas, owned a number of casinos and golf courses. And this member of the board of directors of Dean Foods was placing bets through Billy Walters and also had played golf with Phil Mickelson and Billy Walters throughout the number of years and fell into such debt that he started providing material non-public information about Dean Foods to Billy Walters to pay off his debts. And Phil Mickelson actually had a debt to Billy Walters too. He owed about $900,000. And so Billy Walters provided information to Phil Mickelson about a material news announcement concerning Dean Foods and Phil Mickelson placed the trade. And so it was an interesting group of characters. Phil Mickelson ended up being named as a relief defendant. He was not charged criminally in the case. But the member of the board directors of Dean Foods and Billy Walters are both in jail now. And it's also one of those things that proves the stereotype about people trading information on a golf course. (laughs) Yes, that's right. You know what? It happens more often than you can imagine. We've had plenty of those cases over the years. But I'm sure that's part of the list you're looking at, too, if someone's a member of the same club. Absolutely. Absolutely. Particularly with those identification lists, when someone says they play golf together, that's certainly, a, I don't want to call it a red flag since I play golf myself, but, <laughs> uh, but it's certainly something we're going to look at. I'll caveat this and say, insider trading is dumb. I think we can agree to that. But what are some of the dumbest things you've seen people do to try to get away with it? Yeah, there was a case a a number of years ago involving a guy named Vladimir Eidelman, who was a registered representative. And he was getting information indirectly from a a law clerk at a law firm out in California. And the information was being provided through a middleman. And the way they were set it up is the law clerk at the law firm would pick up on deals that his law firm was working on. He would pass the information to the middleman at various coffee houses in New York City, and he'd have an iPhone, and he'd have a ticker symbol on it. There was no discussion. He just showed him the ticker symbol, and the middleman would leave the coffee shop. And then he'd go down to Grand Central Station and meet Mr. Eidelman, and he'd write the ticker symbol on either a Post-it note or a napkin, and he'd show it to Mr. Eidelman in the middle of Grand Central Station, and then he would proceed to eat the napkin or Post-it note. Uh, That's a dedication, I guess. That's a dedication, yeah. So that's called destroying evidence in a very unique way. So that's probably one of the dumbest things I've seen in my time. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think I saw one recently, too, that caught my eye. You were talking about people failing to identify people in the chronologies, and it was his father who had the same name as him. Yes, and that's another really, I mean, to use the term dumb probably is understanding it, but there was a guy named Perk Hickson who was an investment banker 
at a very large M&A firm. In our investigation, we saw his father trading in, in our trade data. Then we saw another woman who we were able to make connections to him through Facebook and through other uh, social media. And it turned out that we put both their names on our identification list that I described earlier, and he didn't identify either his father. His name was Perk Hickson, and his father's name was Hickson also. He did not identify his father. He later claimed that the name he saw was of a guy the county over from his father in Georgia, but it turned out his father lived right on the county line. So, But then he would have known that guy too. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> probably right. Yeah. And then he didn't identify this other woman. It turned out that he had basically been taking material non-public information from his employer and trading in his father's name to make a little money for his father. But the woman turned out to be his mistress. And he had opened an account in her name and he was using the insider trading profits to pay her because she had a child with Mr. Hickson. And his wife presumably didn't know about it. So he was basically funneling insider trading profits to pay child support to this woman. That sounds like something out of a TV show. (laughs) All sorts of messy there. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So just to wrap up, I wanted to ask a couple philosophical questions. Why do you think people do it? I ask myself that question every single day. And it comes down to greed. It sort of comes full circle from the question you asked me at the beginning about, you know, I work as a criminal prosecutor in Baltimore, and and a lot of people committed those crimes out of necessity, especially the economic crimes in terms of robbery or, or burglary and things like that, because they needed the money to survive. But these people generally, if you have a brokerage account in the U.S. and there's money in it, it means that you certainly have means to survive at a minimum, but usually means you're of means and certainly above means probably most Americans. And so... The only thing I can boil it down to is greed. And to see some of the examples I gave, you know, Raj Raj Ratnam was already a multi-multi-millionaire, maybe even closer to a billionaire. And yet he was just greedy. He just wanted more than he could get. And in every example I've given and pretty much every case I see every day, it is greed. And that's what drives me every day, quite frankly, to see these people who don't need to do it, but still do it probably half our cases, are people who come into possession of information one time. And they figure, you know what? I'll trade one time and no one will catch me. I'll get enough to pay for my kid's college education or buy a new car or something like that. So yes, that's greed, but it's also the feeling that if I do it once, no one's going to catch me. Either way, it's wrong. Either way, it's a violation of the federal securities laws. And it doesn't matter because we're going to chase them down and catch them. So moral of the story, don't do it. Sam, thanks for joining us. I thought that was really interesting, so hopefully our listeners do too. That's all for today's episode. From Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. If you have any questions for future guests or ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at finraunscripted at finra.org or reach out to us on social media. Until next time. Please note, FINRA podcasts are the sole property of FINRA, and the information provided is for informational and educational purposes only. The content of the podcast does not constitute any FINRA rule or amendment or interpretation to such rules. Compliance with any recommended conduct presented does not mean that a firm or person has complied with the full extent of their obligations under FINRA rules, the rules of any other SRO, or securities laws. This podcast is provided as is. FINRA and its affiliates are not responsible for any human or mechanical errors or omissions. Parties may not reproduce these podcasts in any form without the express written consent of FINRA. FINRA.